1: Changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, October 10th, 2008. Episode 98 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania this week. My name is Joe Hughes or Radio Joe and here with me in the studio is the wingman, Chris Boisell at the Controls. Good afternoon, Joe. Good day, Chris. Uh, the Z-Man, my usual co-host, is off in Seattle at some board meetings this week, so he won't be able to join us, but Carl Grimes has agreed to help out again this week, and we'll bring him in in just a moment. We also have our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wa with us this week, and uh, we're going to do a little different segment at halftime today, we'll call that. But let's start with uh, today's segments. We're going to have the microband trivia question. Then we've got Tom Neltner, JD, CHMM, Director of Training and Education at the National Center for Healthy Housing. We'll then go to our halftime segment. We'll bring in Glenn Fellman from IE Connections What's News. We'll bring our Technical Director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, in. We'll ask a few questions. Then we'll go back to the second half of the interview. And at the end of the show, we'll have what we call the roundup where everyone will come back in and get a chance to ask questions. The Z-Man and I have been uh, working on that iaqradio.com website, putting up a blog every week after the show. Check it out at iaqradio.com. Let's thank our sponsors before we start.
2: Our newest sponsor is Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. And Microband Systems, the microbial management company at
1: microbandsystems.com.
2: Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. DryEase products, providing equipment for drying
1: water damaged homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions at
2: dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondo Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services.
1: Okay, to contact the show, you can simply call 724-444-7444, enter our show ID, which is 1547, then just press 1 and join the show. You can also download the show by going to our website, iaqradio.com, and follow the link that says Go to the Show, or you can also download the show from iTunes. You can get your IICRC Continuing Education credits or IAQ Council Renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz. My email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. And, of course, we also like to get those requests, suggestions for guests, or ask questions by emailing me or the Z-Man at cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Well, Cliff is out for the week, so he sent me the microband trivia question for today. I'll take it this week. Okay, First, we want to thank uh, Dan Reed of Intuitive Environmental for giving it a good shot on uh, the questions from show 86 and 87. 86 was not correct. 87, we're waiting for a uh, judgment from the trivia question host, Cliff Slotnick, when he gets back in. So uh, keep on trying on show 86. That's the only one outstanding right now, and that's a tough one. And we'll get back with Dan on whether that was correct on number 87. This week's question... Due to its sweet flavor, this substance was used by ancient Romans to enhance its finest foods and wines. Name the substance. All right, let's move on now to, uh, we've got some introductory music for our first guest. believe that's led boys and jane if i'm not mistaken we'll have that up on the on the blog when we're done tom neltner is the director of training and education at the national center for healthy housing in columbia maryland the national center's mission is to develop and promote practical methods to protect children from environmental health hazards in their homes while preserving affordable housing mr neltner joined the center in 2005 his primary responsibility is managing the National Healthy Homes Training Center and Network. He also leads the organization's work on housing codes and integrated pest management. Before joining NCHH, Mr. Neltner was the executive director of Improving Kids' Environment, a nonprofit advocacy group dedicated to children's environmental health issues. He started IKE in 1999. After six years with the Indiana Department of Environment as the Assistant Commissioner for the agency's Office of Pollution Prevention and Technical Assistance, Mr. Neltner is a chemical engineer and an attorney licensed to practice law in Washington, D.C. and in Indiana. He is a certified hazardous materials manager. Tom, welcome to the show. Oh, got to unmute you first. There you go. We got you, Tom. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, and thanks for joining us today on IAQ Radio. I, um, I've been reading over the website trying to put some questions together, and, and I just wanted to, for the listeners, give them a real quick overview of the National Center. The National Center for Healthy Housing, formerly the National Center for Lead Safe Housing, uh, was a, founded as a nonprofit in October of 92 to bring public health, housing, and environmental communities together to combat our nation's epidemic of childhood lead poisoning. As the center uh, continued its important role in reducing children's risk of lead poisoning, it has expanded its mission to help decrease children's exposure to other hazards in the home, including biological, physical, and chemical contaminants in and around the home. Let's start out by asking, how is the National Center for Healthy Housing funded, Tom?
0: Well, the National Center for Healthy Housing is funded primarily from federal agencies. Um, we work with three agencies most closely, and that's the Environmental Protection Agency, U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control. We also work with Department of Energy and Department of Agriculture, but those three agencies—EPA, HUD, and CDC. Provide NCHH with a significant portion of its training, and then we work with states, uh, private foundations, and different organizations to bring in the balance.
1: Why? Why did um, the National Center go from focusing on lead-based paint into all these other issues surrounding healthy housing?
0: Well, there are a variety of pressures that uh, resulted in that change, and the first one is a realization that lead poisoning prevent lead poisoning was a symptom not just of deteriorated lead-based paint, but of deteriorated housing. That if you didn't get after the water damage that caused the paint to deteriorate, that creates the dust that poisons the kids, you weren't going to get to any sustainable or systematic solutions. So we saw moving towards the overall structure as an important step to get to make progress on childhood lead poisoning. But we were also seeing the um, epidemic of asthma driving things and the clear connections that had with health problems in the home, damp indoor spaces, uh, pests, cockroaches, uh, pets, um, those kinds of exposures in the home were so clearly connected up with asthma that we knew we needed to make that step. And then the last one is that's what people were asking us to go to. We, as the National Center for Health Lead Safe Housing, we're the organization that was saying, you know, abatement, eliminating lead is not a realistic solution to this time. What we need to do is learn how better to manage the lead-based paint that's in place so it's not deteriorated. So we felt that as a research and training organization, we had a, a, a voice there that talks about a pragmatic middle ground.
1: Okay. And is the focus solely on children's health or are we looking at the health of all the building occupants?
0: It's all the building occupants, but we always put a priority on children um, because, unfortunately, children are sometimes used as the indicators for problems. We see that on lead, but also because children, you know, it, the exposures are so much more significant. They're down there playing on the floor where the problems might be. They're more sensitive to the, uh, to the hazards. But increasingly, we've expo- we've expanded the focus to also look at the elderly, where slip, trips, and falls can be such a devastating um, problem and we can try we're trying to look for safety solutions to those so it's gone beyond children but children are still high on our list
1: okay i'd like to set up this next question and then bring carl grimes in to to ask a follow-up here Uh, when i went through your website there was a, a section basically that says what we do And the first sentence kind of stuck out with me. It said the uh, National Center for Healthy Housing sponsors research on methods to reduce residential environmental hazards and to scientifically assess risks. And the mission statement is to create healthy and safe homes for children through practical and proven steps. And I think Carl may have a follow-up with respect to how do you assess risk. Carl, is that accurate?
3: Uh, yeah, it is, and I first have to say that the, the public health perspective is, is relatively new for me, Tom. Uh, I took the, I took the uh, Healthy Homes course in Kansas City last week, oh,
4: good. and I
3: found it interesting for a number of reasons, and uh, just prior to that, the American Industrial Hygiene Association came out with their new publication on mold, uh, the Recognition, Evaluation, and Control of Indoor Mold or colloquially known as the green book and they are really pushing a shift on moisture and mold at least from the industrial hygiene regulatory compliance framework to the public health framework so i have i'm not sure i even have enough uh, knowledge about public health to be dangerous with it but i'm certainly curious about it and one of the questions that came up for me was Uh, on the legal issues or uh, trying to compel someone to um, comply with what needs to be done uh, based on risk. Uh, Can you talk a little briefly about how you do that from a public health perspective where it's public health standards, public health guidance, but it's not like a regulation?
0: What we don't do, we're not yet uh, with enough information to do a rigorous risk assessment like EPA does on these hazards. Um, what we are doing is supporting those kind of assessments when it comes to allergens and the like. What that sponsorship talked about mostly was that we don't do as much research as we help empower other people and help support their research efforts. Um, and there's always ways we can do better on that. But our general, and i am have to apologize, I'm not familiar with the Green Book, but our general approach is, when it comes to the enforcement system, is instead of an OSHA-oriented approach, it's more of a housing code-oriented approach, which focuses on sort of the root causes. It doesn't get into exposure assessments as much as it does saying, fix the roo- leaky roof, uh, to seal up the foundation. So our regulatory mode is sanitation codes that are around the states and housing codes that are out there as well does that answer your question
1: I've got actually we muted Carl for the back to keep the background up but I think that that's a good start on the answer to what we're headed for here what I'm I'm curious how do you assess or how do you determine if something's been scientifically assessed from your public health perspective like an example would be the mold issue prior to 2000 you know there was some information out there that mold could be a health hazard but it wasn't quite you know and and still to this day there's quite a bit of argument about how much of a health hazard how do you do your risk assessment is it different from way the way a traditional industrial hygienist would
0: well our research our director of research is dr david jacobs who is a certified industrial hygienist and he uses those basic industrial hygiene approaches Um, what we've One of our big steps right now is we've just done a National Institute of Health expert panel that reviewed the scientific literature on the connection between health and housing, but more importantly at this stage is the how effective are various healthy homes interventions. So what we try to do is look at the literature, look at the research, and try to give people recommendations an assessment on those healthy homes interventions. A good example would be if a child's got asthma, many programs have been suggesting simply encasing the, um, the pillows and the mattress in a, uh, one of these allergen-free covers. And the literature and the research is pretty clear that that won't work. While it may be a reassuring step, it doesn't actually fix the problem unless it's part of a broader re- uh, cleanup in the rooms. So what we're pushing for in our scientific assessment of the risks is the research says you need to deal with the cleaning of the carpets. you need to do uh, you need to clean up the mold that may be there. You need to stop the mold of the water sources as well as working on the mattress. That's our approach, what we mean by the scientific assessment of the risks and the scientific interventions.
1: Okay, let's bring Carl back now. I had to mute you, Carl. We're getting a little background noise from your location. I wanted to give you a chance to you know Tom asked if he answered your question. I want to make sure we got that.
3: Um, yeah, you pretty much did. I think one of the things that uh, consultants like myself and Joe and and other contractors often deal with is what's the basis for uh, for action, and the legal in the legal arena right now is pretty much solely regulatory combined, uh, 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 compliance. It's based on lab testing for mold, uh, as I like to kind of sarcastically or facetiously term it, how many mold spores can dance on the head of a pin. (laughs) And I I much prefer the public health approach. Could you talk just a little bit about what codes are available? Uh, There was one particular one in the course that I learned about, which is the the property maintenance code that is just new, I think, to this country and only a couple of states and a few municipalities have Uh, adopted it. But it's quite intriguing to me that there was actually uh, the possibility of a maintenance code that could be used for enforcement.
0: There are state-level housing codes in a few states, uh, Massachusetts, Michigan, surprisingly, Tennessee, California, they have state-level housing codes. But the trend is because housing codes get to be so difficult and there's so much... um, it's so difficult to stay up on the latest science that people are deferring to the International Code Council's International Property Maintenance Code. The International Code Council has a whole mixture of codes. Um, they deal with the building code, or the residential code, or the plumbing code, the mechanical code. One of those codes that's part of that mix is the International Property Maintenance Code. And it was at first adopted in, uh, really in 2000. There was an early version in 1998 and it undergoes regular revisions through the International Code Council approach. Um, two weeks ago, there was just a major revisions to those codes. Uh, for example, they now require sprinklers for new construction in one- and two-family homes. But this property maintenance code applies to all buildings, and existing or new, and it sets some minimum standards that these building inspectors would enforce on. It is effectively the nation's model housing code, but it's also the nation's model existing building code. And it, most of it talks from a public health approach of, you know, we're not going to get into a rigorous risk analysis. I can tell you that if the wall is wet, that's bad, and fix the holes. As part of this International Property Maintenance Code, it also includes many safety elements, uh, fire protection and the like. It's, uh, two states have adopted it statewide, and that's Virginia and uh, New York, Oklahoma and Arizona have adopted it for limited facilities like uh, health care facilities or schools, and then other states are adopting it for, uh, for communities to use. About six to 700 communities have already adopted it beyond those state-level actions, and that's increasing every week. And what they do is they incorporate it by reference, and then the building inspector enforces it what brings in this new player with quite a bit of clout and quite a bit of credibility in a community. That's that's a new trend. Um, they tend to be uh, suburban communities where they didn't have a code, so they were looking to adopt something. But we're also seeing now big cities switching over. Philadelphia, St. Louis, Kansas City have all switched over to the property maintenance code, preferring to rely on this system of ongoing updates as the right way to move. That's
1: Fascinating. Did it do better, Carl? Yeah, we've got a muted again. We had a little background okay. noise, but uh, that sounded – that that's fascinating. That's the first we've really had discussion, in-depth discussion of that issue on the show, and uh, maybe we'll get into more detail later on that during the halftime of the roundup. But before we go to that, I wanted to talk to you just a little bit about some of the ongoing research projects. I went on the website and found that you had the um, – DOE, Department of Energy, and I don't want to get the acronym police on my back here. Uh, we have a, an acronym police, by the way, Tom. If you use too many acronyms, we'll pull you over. <laughs> uh, they've got a lead-safe weatherization program. So uh, we've also got an evaluation of green housing rehabilitation in Minnesota. I know Glenn Feldman has a question at halftime on that. We've got the Maine Weatherization and Respiratory Health Project And uh, I wanted to ask, you know, it appears that there's some concern that during these weatherization projects, let's start with that, we're causing health problems, potentially causing health problems, trying to fix these other issues. Is that accurate, and is that why you're doing this type of research?
0: Yes, it is accurate. Um, In the 70s, when weatherization was launched, tightening up the homes was the goal and it's clear now that they tightened up the home so much that they created some real ventilation problems moisture problems and they've done a dramatic change in understanding the building science Uh, most weatherization people are really good building scientists now and are able to minimize some of those ventilation and moisture damage problems in our research funded by the department of energy we found that the weatherization programs also generate lead hazards despite the training that they had received, and despite the policies that had been adopted, they were either not using them, which was the case in some, or even when they used them, they weren't using them properly and creating lead hazards. The lead hazards come from when you disturb old old lead-based paint. So if they're going to drill a hole in a knee wall in order to get the insulation in, they leave the lead dust around. Just when it comes to lead dust, to get an idea of how little dust causes a problem, one gram, one sugar packet of sugar, if sugar were lead, spread over 25,000 square feet is the EPA standard for safe on the floor of a home. That's one gram per 25,000 square feet or 40 micrograms per square foot. Hmm. You get that. It's incredibly low levels. And even at that level, a child living in the home has about a one in seven chance of being lead poisoned. So we found that they were creating these very low levels of lead that were causing problems plus there's the ongoing effort of weatherization to to make sure that as we go into these higher energy prices that people don't take um that they we remember the lessons learned from the 70s and we don't have weatherization create more lead hazards and they're good at uh, they're being aware of it but they need to keep up on the latest science especially around
1: moisture well, how do how does your group uh, sponsor the research, and how did they choose what type of research to sponsor?
0: Well, we start a lot with lead because that is what we know best. Um, but we oftentimes the agencies come to us and ask us um, to investigate a problem. Sometimes we have done some preliminary research that the agencies ask us to follow up on. But more significantly is HUD, the U.S. Housing, Department of Housing and Urban Development, has a Healthy Homes Grant Program where they fund technical studies on healthy homes and on lead. They offer um, up to ten million dollars a year and we propose projects, work with partners, and uh, try to do the research in that area. That's where the one that um, where we had looked at different asthma measurement methods. How do you measure, how do you come up with a consistent method to measure asthma allergens was one part of that. Another one is coordinating um NHANES, which is a public health a health assessment program with American Housing Survey numbers where they survey um, the condition of housing across the country. So the projects are generally funded through HUD as part of its Healthy Homes Research Program.
1: Okay, we we have not focused as much on lead paint as I guess I would like in, in 98 shows now. So what I'd like to do is, is focus on that for just a minute. That'll take us up to about half time then we'll bring Carl Glenn and Dieter in to see if they have any follow ups um, I think and I'm not sure but you can you can let me know is the are the studies you've been doing part of the reason EPA has finally passed legislation requiring anyone doing remodeling and target housing to have what they call lead safe work practices training
0: yes and no what forced EPA to do it was a congressional law, federal law, that was passed in 1992 that said you must do it by 1996. So 12 years later, they got it done. Helped out along that way was a lawsuit and some more federal legislation that moved them along. But they had adopted this rule in April, and it goes into effect in April 22nd of 2010. Our research helped guide that work to make sure that it was going to be practical and was going to be effective. It's a pretty major project. It costs. It will affect 8.4 million renovation events in the first year alone, on the 35 million homes that are built before 1978. It will also affect schools and childcare facilities. Anywhere that it routinely has um, children coming into the place is likely to be affected. 235,000 people have to be trained between April 2009 and April 2010 and 210,000 firms have to be certified by EPA. Then they have to follow the rule. The rule's not a difficult one. Um, it doesn't add a lot of cost if they're responsible contractors already leaving the place in pretty good shape. It does use what's what's a controversial white glove test is the colloquial way of naming it, but basically cleaning verification procedure where you use a pad like a Swiffer and you wipe the floor dry wipe it a couple of times and compare it to a card. If it passes, you're done. If it doesn't pass, you do it again. And if it still doesn't pass, then you do a wet wipe and you're done. So they've created this cleaning verification, or it's better known as a white glove test, to make sure that contractors are done. And while that focuses on lead dust, it also captures all the other kinds of
1: dusts that can be out there. Now, does that is that sort of checking on yourself? I... I didn't catch that so the contractor does this themselves you're very good
0: yes that's a real problem with the rule is the contractor checking on themselves and passing themselves and that right now there is a lawsuit um, by the National Association of Home Builders and Sierra Club and the and several other groups who are saying that needs to have some independent verification and that lawsuit's working its way through it. It doesn't suspend the law. Everybody wants the rule to move forward, but that feature of the white glove test and the contractor pet judging their own work is um, one of the hottest issues about the rule.
1: That's a very important discussion for our, we have a lot of contractors who listen to the show and consultants and, and then general, you know, general public, but by April, so what you're telling me is by April of 2010, they will have to be trained in this lead-safe work practices if they're going to disturb lead-based paint in target housing or schools and child care centers. How much lead-based paint is there? A uh, a minimum, maximum number, or something like that? Well, it's
0: actually not if they disturb lead-based paint. It's disturb if they disturb
1: any paint
0: that they haven't shown to be. Not lead based paint. Gotcha. In other words, there's a presumption that it's lead based paint. The cutoff is six square feet inside, 20 square feet outside, but any demolition of a painted surface and any window replacement is automatically in without regard to the threshold. Because windows are such a dangerous source for lead poisoning.
1: All right. Let's go to, we're going to thank our sponsors here real quick, and then we're going to come back with what we call the halftime. Carl, I haven't got you enough, so I'm going to get you first. Then we're going to bring uh, Glenn Feldman and Dr. Dieter in.
2: Our newest sponsor is Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. envirocom And Microband Systems, the microbial management company
1: at microbandsystems.com.
2: Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. DryEase products, providing equipment
1: for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions
2: at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at JONDON.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right, it's halftime. Chris?
1: All right. We don't have a whistle here, but we're going with the siren, and also that's a warning for those of you coming on. The acronym police are, are, they've got a a check stop set up here, so no acronyms, please. Let's go back to Carl Grimes real quick for the first question at halftime.
3: Yeah, Tom, I would like to follow up on that question that Joe just asked you about uh, contractors uh, checking their own work and so forth. We have a uh, that's that's a very hot topic in um, outside of public health and at your arena into the indoor environmental uh, consultants and contractors for mediators and so forth. Uh, to prevent that conflict of interest, is there any is there any uh, uh, movement to resolve that, such as requiring? that a consultant, an independent party, come in and check. It might even be another remediator, but it would be someone independent from the contractor that's on the job. And if it's it, to include consultants and not just the, the contractors, is training being set up for that?
0: Yeah, good question, Carl. Um, this is the HUD, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. They have a lead-safe housing rule that's been around since 1999. That rule requires an independent person, somebody who did not do the work, to step in and do what's called a dust clearance. You wipe the floor with a dust wipe. You put it in a tube and send it to a lab for testing. And there's a certification program that EPA has established for that person, It's a half-day course and a test that you have to pass in to be certified. Those, that independence is what HUD expects, and it's worked well for HUD. It's something EPA rejected partly out of costs. I think without that independence and without a real test, it really does undermine both the credibility of the rule and the effectiveness of the rule. Anybody who's judging their own work and has a real financial incentive to get out of that project as quickly as possible is not going to do a good job of this. I mean, there's some real credible people out there, but the financial incentives are just
1: real compelling. Okay, let's move over to Glenn Felman. Glenn?
5: Hello, how are you? Welcome, Glenn. Thank you. Hi, Glenn. Hi. My question uh, is about a, a report that came out last month from the National Center for Healthy Housing. Two years ago, the center put out a study called Comparing Green Building Guidelines and Healthy Homes Principles, a preliminary investigation. That was in 2006. Last month, the... Um, The center put out a document, uh, or I should say a report, called How Healthy Are National Green Building Programs? And I found it to be a a very wonderful read, and I recommend it highly. People can download it at uh, centerforhealthyhousing.org. But the, the the, uh, the, the report looked at four programs. It looked at the NAHB Green Building Program, the USGBC LEED Program, EPA's Indoor Air Package, and a program that I'm not as familiar with called the Enterprise Community Partners Green Communities Initiative. Uh, interestingly, it was that program which was rated most highly. It got a B plus, B+. And uh, the EPA program got a B plus, And the USGBC program got a B-. Minus. The NAHB program got a D. And this is... Um, These are health grades, looking at these green building programs from a health perspective that the center has uh, established a criteria for. My question's for you, two of them. Number one, why did the NAHB program do so poorly? And number two, since I'm not so familiar with the Enterprise Community Partners Program, uh, and I suspect maybe some of the listeners aren't as well, is there a little bit you can tell us about that and how to find out
0: more about it? Uh, Definitely. Um, Glenn... I just wanted to also point out that there used to be five in our report two years ago, and one of the programs dropped off, and it had very high ratings, and it was the American Lung Association's Health House. Mm. So it's disappointing to lose one of the standards that's out there, but because of um, the dominance of NHB and the USGBC Lead Program, I think it just didn't—it it wasn't popular enough. The NHB program is scored low because the It doesn't require that the health aspects be done. You get, it's a scoring system where you can pick and choose from an a la carte menu. You score high if you pick up a whole bunch of items, but it doesn't require that the health be a part of the building. So it can be certified and not be healthy. There is not enough evidence that the health aspects are being used. So we don't know enough, and there isn't that kind of rigorous evaluation of all these programs. To ask what do they do when they, when they make their choices, I'm hoping that contractors choose or the developers choose the health aspects, but it's not required and it's not certain that they will. The enterprise community, um, Enterprise Foundation, is a um, is an organization that's long worked on building affordable housing. Um, they're funded uh, in large measure by Congress to build um, affordable housing, and they've been a, made a real commitment to green communities. Their program is very similar to the USGBC program, uh, the lead for homes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a few features that make it stronger. So it's mostly in the affordable housing realm.
5: I see. Well, it was a great read, and I highly recommend it, especially for, for listeners of the show who are trying to understand how these Green building programs affect indoor air quality. I think a lot of a lot of the people who listen to the show and my peers, when we think of green buildings, the first thing we think of is the the health of the occupants, whereas these green building programs are really thinking about the health of the of the overall environment of our world and our earth. And so um, there's a possibility to lose the indoor air quality focus. I know within the new USGBC rating uh, system for 2008. Uh, a building can get a, a high level of certification, but have a relatively low level of, of, of indoor air quality guidelines and criteria that it's met. That's something that disturbs me, and, and I know a lot of the people who follow this program.
0: But that I, is exactly our concern as well, and that's what prompted us to do this report. Um, it's sometimes it's easier to worry about the energy efficiency and using bamboo floors, yet not making sure that your home actually is healthy and I think most consumers would assume that if it's a green home it's going to be healthy and I think there may be a backlash in the future if these programs don't improve
1: okay thank you Glenn let's bring our next uh, questioner on good afternoon Dieter. do we have good afternoon
4: uh, I hear my good old friend Beethoven (laughs) playing in the background (laughs) I like that
1: any questions or comments for Tom Dieter?
4: Uh, yeah, and I have, I have one question. I, I started writing it down. Center, um, uh, Glenn mentioned that. Center for Healthy, and that's where I stopped, .org. That article he mentioned, I would like to read that one. And later on, maybe he can repeat uh, uh, that link that, that, that people can get to it. Like I said, I got to Center for Healthy, and I <laughs> question mark. Okay. Give anyway, you the, look, maybe I Tom launch, knows.
0: I, I can give you the shortcut on that, and that's www n c h h dot org National Center for Healthy Housing n c n c h h h h dot
4: Oh terrific!
0: And that'll reroute you to the one.
4: Uh, that the that, that will time. be fine, and I'm I'm sure that other people uh, you know like that shortcut too. That is great. I heard my favorite word again, and I still don't have an answer, and it's a huge question mark for me in my thinking, and that is asthma. Do we get asthma from indoor air quality? I don't know. I didn't know what asthma was until I was about 25 years old and I lived in the United States. I grew up during and after the Second World War in Germany in a place where we lived with glass and wood and stone. There was no plastic, no nothing. Uh, certainly none of the houses were insulated any of which way. Um, we didn't have water, we didn't have electricity, we did. You know, uh, and I remember the first time when I was a kid, I saw plastic. It was called Bakelite, and I didn't know what the heck it was. Anyway, <clears throat> we have asthma problems in this country, which is just unbelievable. And I am kind of surprised that really nobody has an answer. <clears throat> Is it the environment? Of course it's the environment. But what factor of the environment? Why didn't we have, uh, from that village where I grew up, I moved into a big city, and we were in classes with 40 and 50 people in the class during that time. Nobody had asthma. We didn't know what asthma was. And that was during a time, yeah, this is 60 years ago, 70 years ago. I will be 70 pretty soon. So I, I I would like to know whether perhaps the indoor environment is producing asthma. Is that part of it? I don't know. As far as lead is concerned, I think there will be an end inside. You know, we don't manufacture lead anymore. There will be a lot of old uh, buildings where we have lead. And I certainly wouldn't want to have any, anybody, any person in the world suffering from lead poisoning, which is pretty, pretty nasty. And I am, I'm involved with this. I'm measuring uh, lead and air. And uh, I would also like, and uh, it, <laughs> Tom mentioned that um, when we are talking about uh, uh, lead concentrations, we are talking micrograms. And that is a millionth of a gram, which is just unbelievable. And uh, as uh, we heard, one gram of lead dust goes a long way. Twenty-five you really have to appreciate that. All right. Well,
0: let, me, let me answer your question on asthma first. Sure.
4: Um, do you have an answer?
0: I will do my best, and that is
4: <laughs> Terrific. it's
0: a complicated disease, and no one really it, understands it. Some it's of a... it is diagnosis, where people may have had it before, but they didn't know it. Um, some of it is the new exposures. Some of it's the new chemicals. There's not a real good knowledge of it, but right. there are two reports that when it comes to housing that really helped answer the question. Great. One is came out from the Institute of Medicine in, two, in the year 2000. It's called Clearing the Air, and it can, says it basically assessed the science in 2000 and said what problems are associated with asthma, both in development of asthma and exacerbation. Okay. When it came to development, they found sufficient evidence for house dust mites and environmental tobacco smoke in preschool age children. They said mm. that causes the asthma. When it comes to development, not surprisingly, cats dogs they also said in that report that mold is associated with the exacerbation be, of yeah. asthma they said it doesn't necessarily cause it they didn't find enough evidence for that they also identified cockroaches and so cockroaches especially so are, german
4: cockroaches yep, are yep, big yep. these damn germans again <laughs> <laughs> oh, no no no
0: they're they're popular here <laughs>
4: Illegal immigrants.
0: Yeah. No, they, they, they're, they're, they're perfectly homegrown. The other one is nitrogen oxides. People that use um, used the kitchen stove for heating, Yeah, they often experience asthma attacks, too. So nitrogen oxides at um, yeah. high levels.
4: Which would make sense because none of the above I was uh, exposed to because it wasn't there um, when I was a kid. It just didn't exist for me.
0: Except for cockroaches,
4: uh, probably those
0: are. I mul- don't remember those. Yeah, and a lot of homes didn't have them. And I lived
4: in that. that was I grew up in, in in a little village, a village with about a hundred houses or something like that.
0: It's more of a multifamily housing issue. Well, we where, didn't have
4: multiple housing there. <laughs> so
0: you get that. The other yeah. aspect is in two thousand four, the Institute of Medicine published another expert panel report that concluded that damp indoor environments are associated with asthma, um, upper respiratory tract symptoms, coughing and wheezing. No, you're getting some there. And then when they said when mold is present with the damp indoor spaces, you also get hypersensitivity pneumonitis, which is pneumonia. We the kind pneumonia.
4: of know that, yes.
0: And it's it locked in what we've seen and it made it, you know, came from the Institute of Medicine, so it made it clear that we've got those connections. All and right. it suggested a lot of other connections. Yeah. One that's coming up now is formaldehyde in the composite wood products. Yeah. Um, this is the trailers, uh, the FEMA trailers from the south. Sure. Um, those high levels of formaldehyde, There is looks to be a very strong association, but not scientifically
1: robust enough um, with asthma, at least exacerbation of asthma. All right. Well, Dieter, we'll bring you back for the roundup. How's that? Yeah, no problem at all. Pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Okay. Tom, let's go into the, the second half. One of the uh, studies that you that i saw on the website was the development of a standardized home assessment for asthma and i know carl was at the training course for um i guess it's the healthy homes practitioner i don't know we'll have to get that straight yeah with the you essentials
0: for healthy homes practitioner is our flagship course okay
1: and is that now this standardized home assessment for asthma i'm just curious is there not aren't there already some home assessments available out there for asthma are you looking at those trying to figure out which is the best or developing something new? Well, this was, um, we
0: have developed some home assessments and worked with HUD, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, as well as the Centers for Disease Control, and they just published a home inspection manual that deals with the health aspects. Um, That was published um, in June and released at the NEHA, the National Environmental Health Association Conference. But this study is a little more specific. It is how do you properly sample for allergens? We looked at the research in the areas that had been done and, and looked at the comparisons to see if there was a way to come up with a common recommendation for asthma allergen sampling. And we, uh, we're we still working on that one. Um, there's a lot of differences, and the researchers are very wedded to their own particular favorite. And the idea is that HUD's Healthy Homes Program would fund those uh, would expect to be using a standard sampling method. So it's a very specific study, not just an overall assessment, but for allergen sampling.
1: Okay. Let me uh, ask one more question, then we'll bring Carl back on to talk a little bit more about the National Healthy Homes Training Center and the Healthy Homes Practitioner Program. One of the – I just saw a bunch of completed research projects on your site, and I just wanted to ask if you could give us an example of one of those – Uh, Healthy Homes sponsored research programs that has really helped to develop some kind of practical strategy for making homes safer?
0: Well, the best one I would think would be this um, Boston One Touch where we did some research and it's a very applied research where we looked at people in Boston and how the services were being delivered. And what was happening is there was a lot of overlap between the government services and people would come into a home Several people would and provide similar services, confusing residents and um, wasting resources. As you may or may not know, too many times the biggest investment of resources is getting into a home. Once you're in a home, to not do as much as you can is a real weakness, so the research really looked at what are the different ways to coordinate these resources so people get a one touch. That's an example of the applied type of research. The other ones have been a lot involved with lead, um, looking at demolition of homes and asking when you demolish a home, what type of issues do you have with lead dust on adjacent property? Um, that's an example of some research that's underway.
1: And you've and also, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, you've also Go ahead. done a lot of research on lead safe work practices and lead hazard control as well, and I don't think we have time to get into all that, but can you highlight one of those maybe? Yeah, what we found in the Lead
0: Safe Work Practices effort looking at thousands of homes that had had been thoroughly checked was that you don't want to disturb intact lead-based paint. The problem is deteriorated lead-based paint and that you need to make sure that you keep paint in good shape. And if it's deteriorated, then lay out some specific work practices, which are now going to be required by the EPA rule, the Environmental Protection Agency's rule. The other thing we've done on that is we've looked at the lead dust standard. As uh, Dieter appropriately said, it's very low levels, one gram per 25,000 square feet, but still at that level, a child has a one in seven chance of being lead poisoned. And what we're finding is that the dangers are greater. We're also finding that the levels of lead that we used to consider were acceptable are no longer acceptable. So what we're trying to do is research, translating back and saying, how should those numbers be revised? It almost looks like instead of 40 micrograms per square foot, it should be 10. Hmm. And that makes it a lot harder to reach.
1: Wow. All right, let's talk a little bit about the National Healthy Homes Training Center and, and your involvement with them. I know this is one of your, your most interesting areas uh, or one of the areas you, you like the most. And Carl just attended one of those courses. So let's bring Carl back on and see if he has a quick question.
3: My, yeah, my, I've I've got, you've raised a whole lot of other questions for me here, Tom.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's good, right? uh, Curiosity is.
3: It is. It's excellent because I'm, I'm, I'll get to my question in a moment, but I want to make the comment that there is a lot of overlap from the indoor environment consulting side of it um, and the public health side of it that you're working at, but there's also a lot that, you bring to the table that we don't and there's some that we bring to the table that you don't so this isn't so much a question but just an appeal to whoever is listening and whoever has any kind of clout or initiative or something to bring bring the two together uh so we have an even more powerful program uh, including the concept of one touch that you mentioned that i heard for the first time at the baltimore conference um that's something that i just think is very, very important. As far as the the classes go, what I found from my side of it, it was very comprehensive, more comprehensive than we are used to, uh, but not as much in-depth because public health practitioners usually don't need to go into that much depth. Is there any uh, plans for an advanced course or another level of training where they can go into each of the different things, such as carbon uh, monoxide, uh, pests, um, and then the tr- more traditional hazards that we're familiar with, to develop in a more advanced course.
0: Okay. Well, first, Carl, thanks for coming to the training and appreciate that assessment. I think it's become clear to me that we need to figure out a better way to work with the Indoor Air Quality Association and its members. There's a lot of talent there, both in terms of technical expertise, but also people that are out there doing this on a regular basis, practical expertise. Um, so we, I'd like to figure out ways to work more closely on these issues. There's too much talent and too much need um, for us to waste either of those. Um, with respect to the course, what we try to do is bring together the health and housing professionals, the building scientists, the home inspectors, the nurses, and have them start learning from each other. So you're right, it doesn't go into the kind of detail what we do is we focus on, um, we try to avoid overwhelming people with the hazards, um, and they often feel like it's just they're chasing one hazard after another and focus on seven principles of healthy homes. Keep it dry, keep it clean, ventilated, contaminant-free, pest-free, safe, and maintained. And if you do those things, you end up fixing a whole bunch of problems at once. So we focus on the action steps to fix them. But still, I think we need to do more in the assessment. We do have a separate course, which we now have just released, um, called Integrated Pest Management for Multifamily Housing to go after those cockroaches, and also the rats and mice. And we've, but we need to do an advanced course that really, I think, gets at the core issues um, and gets more into the science side and more into the testing. And that's something we'll wanna work with you, Carl, and others on, as well as Kevin Kennedy at the Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, to try to develop this advanced course so people can go into homes and do the more, the more careful analysis of the tougher problems rather than more of the uh, uh, simple observational problems.
1: And let's, let's make sure the listeners understand real quick. We'll overview the program. There's a Healthy Homes Practitioner Training Program. I believe that's a, a two-day training course, Tom?
0: Yeah, we call it the Essentials for Healthy Homes Practitioners. It's a two-day course. And the target on that is health and housing professionals. But at the end of that, we hope that you can pass a healthy home specialist credential exam that you get at the end, and which uh, you can take it independently, the exam. And that's coordinated through the National Environmental Health Association. It is really more about the assessment side rather than the remediation side. Uh, but the two-day course is our flagship course, and it's designed to to really get the gears going on a different way of seeing it. Carl, you nailed it when you said it was a different way of approaching a problem. It isn't enough of the details that you can walk away being an expert on the issue.
1: Okay, and that that program, I'm, I'm curious, who hires these healthy home specialists and, and you know, what kind of money can they expect to make? Well, it's a new area for
0: us. Um, primarily, we've had 350 people take the exam. Um, they are health departments, but we've also seen some pest management professionals and some home inspectors take it and some builders take it. But right now, it's mostly the health department people as one of the core audiences where they're trying to um, trying to document their expertise in looking at housing. Uh, many of the health departments are the first line of defense. They get called on um, so they're, they're the big ones. We don't know about the money side, and that's all still in the learning process. This has only one been out there one
1: year. Great. Now the, the other thing I want to mention as far as money goes is the course is really reasonable from what I've seen. The, the cost of the course is not very high.
0: Yeah. Many places offer it for free. Some places typically charge $50 because they're serving serving food. We're fortunate enough to get funding from US EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, HUD, Housing and Urban Development, as well as the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Trying to avoid the acronym, police here. All right, uh, and <laughs> they um, and they were able to fund it. But we work through thirty training partners or twenty training partners to cover about forty states. They're mostly um, university-based, but sometimes health departments around the country, and some of them are extension offices um, where they bring together an ability to reach in rural areas that are so important when it comes to housing. Um, we've had some real good luck. I know the uh, indoor air quality folks um, I think worked well in Georgia. We had some really active involvement in the Georgia, the Georgia contingent and frankly they added a lot of value to the course because we try to write the course and do the course so it's engaging for people. A lot more exercises than lectures.
1: All right, we're going to go to what we call a roundup here, Tom, so hang in there with me for one second if you would. Let's bring everybody back in here I think Glenn Glenn had warned me He may have to leave early He had a conference call So we may be uh, Let's go to Carl first And Carl, do you have any final questions or comments?
3: I I have one Um, I've I've become aware of the National Asthma Guidelines Put out by the uh, I think it's the uh, Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute And there's uh, I know there's some efforts to do some developed some standardized assessments uh, on the basis of the asthma guidelines. How is that similar or different than what you're doing as your training? I realize that, the, uh, that you're more broad-based than just asthma, but is there any coordination between that, uh, that effort and what uh, your organization is doing?
0: Yes, there is some coordination. It's not enough. We need to keep doing better on it. But um, many of the people are ones that use that asthma assessment tool and they're actually getting funded by healthcare providers to do that assessment. What we wanted them to do is look a little more broadly at the at the housing-related issues and not just at um, uh, occupant
1: education. So there's there's room for improvement both in our work with them but also in the tool itself. All right. Let's get our uh, technical director, Dr. Nader. Any questions or comments?
4: Did you talk to me? Yes, sir. Well. <clears throat> I uh, yeah, being the old uh, university retired university professor, I'm I'm all uh, for education. There's no doubt about it. I'm glad to hear that we're starting to get a handle on it. And and we are not perfect, and but we're on the right track. And uh, can that be improved? Uh, Should there be other topics included later on? Most likely, I have no problem with that. You got to start somewhere, like the old Chinese word. Yeah, a long trip starts with the first step. And I think that's wonderful, and um, I'm I'm glad to see that it is in good hands of people who are interested and interesting, and uh, who can push uh, that to such a level that people are coming, they are learning something, and um, are satisfied with the uh, education, the training they are getting.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Dieter. We appreciate your comments. I have one more subject that I was asked to bring up by a listener I want to make sure that we get this in before we go, Tom. Is, apparently, there's a health homes certification program. Is that a new program, and what is that going to be all about?
0: Well, we have the Healthy Homes Specialist certification or credential offered by the National Environmental home Health Assessment, or I'm sorry, Association NIEHA. Um But there's also, was the American Lung Association had a Health House certification on the home. That's that fifth. Program in the green building that Uh ends up uh, dropping, so it's really fallen by the wayside um, simply because there's so many other programs out there. Let me ask another.
1: Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Before we go, then, what other health hazards in homes has the National Center looked at having programs for?
0: Well, we've looked at flood cleanup as a major area. Um, when you have all these floods, what do you do to go in and triage a home and also make sure you deal with the health aspects? Too many times we just looked at the electrical side and uh, the safety side and didn't deal with the health. And when the building gets occupied, a lot of the residents start to have problems. The other one is formaldehyde. Um, and looking at that as a major source that with a relatively easy solution if we could get the California rules adopted nationally. And then the next one is pest control, that there's a lot to do on pest control. The science is out there to help us. And as part of that, we do have one challenge, and that's called bed bugs. Bed bugs are making a resurgence, so we're struggling with that particular aspect.
1: All right. Can I, can I keep for about two more, maybe three more minutes, Tom?
0: You got it. Great.
1: We've got to go thank our sponsors. I want to come back and ask you another quick question and let people know who our guest is next week.
2: Our newest sponsor is Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legends-enviro.com. And Microband Systems, the microbial management company at
1: microbandsystems.com.
2: Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IEQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. DryEase Products, providing equipment for drying
1: water damaged homes and buildings. DryEase is first in drying solutions at
2: DRI-EAZ.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at JONDON.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services.
1: Okay, we're we're back here with Tom Neltner of the uh, National Center for Healthy Housing, and I've got two final questions, and they're pretty general ones. The first one is, is there anything that we've missed or that uh, you would like to add?
0: I think you've hit the realm of um, into healthy homes as we see it now, but it's an evolving area, and we'd like input and guidance on it. Uh, I, I, www.nchh.org is the best place to get that information.
1: NCH.org, excellent. All right, the other thing I, I just wanted to mention, I, I will guarantee you some uh, listeners' ears perked up when you said flood cleanup. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but we we focus on three issues here at IAQ Radio. We do indoor air quality, we also focus on building sciences, and we have a heavy focus on disaster restoration. My partner has been one of the pioneers in disaster restoration in the industry, and we look forward to talking to you more about that particular program when you get it up and running, and maybe we can even help you with it. Uh, we'd love to help now. All right. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you, Tom, for joining us. Um, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to Tom Neltner for. Joining us this week on IAQ Radio, really a, a fascinating interview, and look forward to talking to him again. I also want to thank uh, Carl Grimes for helping us out with the interview. Of course, Glenn Fellman for joining us at halftime. Can't forget our our technical director, the good doctor, Doctor Dietrich Wow. I also want to announce that uh, next week we've got a really interesting show. We uh, we're going to have. Let's see, we've got Bob. Is it? Let me make sure I got it right. Um, Bob Went of Oak Ridge National Laboratories, and we're going to talk about building science issues next week, so I want to make sure that uh, we get that out and we get ourselves a good group of listeners on. Looks like we had another good week this week. Downloads are going well. Before I go, I also want to thank uh, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick, for sending in the microband trivia question, the Wingman, Chris Boisel, for helping me out here in the studio, but most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio.
0: This has been another IAQ Radio production.